Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. John, thank you very much for reading for us. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Chris. It's great to see you here this morning. And um, it's wonderful to be able to sit together with God's Word open uh, together this morning. Please do keep it open at that reading from page uh, 1165. Uh, We'll be focusing, in fact, over the page uh, on verses 7 to 10 this morning. Uh, Let me pray as we uh, turn back to God's Word. Father, we thank you very much for this series on grace We thank you for the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people. And we pray this morning that you'd help us to understand again, perhaps even in a fresh way, how precious your grace goes on being to each one of us who have turned and trusted in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I must boast, says Paul, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I did some research this week. I consulted a well-known internet bookseller. I don't want to name any names, but just think of a large river in South America. And um, I, uh, I searched for books tagged to the topic of self-esteem. And I got 70,000 hits. I, I tried a, a different search, this time for books tagged to the topic of humility. And I got around 1,000 hits. Why are there 69,000 more hits when it comes to self-esteem 
than when it comes to humility because we live in a world that prizes personal strength and shuns personal weakness. When we think about the kind of people we aspire to be, don't we want to be strong? We want good health, we want a productive career, a a good network of friends. We want people to think that we are competent, well-rounded, a safe pair of hands. We want competent, well-rounded children as well. We want people to think that we're strong, which is why when it comes to our Facebook posts and our Christmas newsletters, they contain the smiles and successes and not the tears and failures. Of course, at the same time, it's no surprise to me to read this week that one quarter of 14-year-old girls display signs of depression. According to one recent uh, survey, as one girl put it, I feel constant pressure to be better than I am. No wonder there's so much despair and depression around in our world when we live in a world that prizes personal strength and shuns personal weakness. This morning, from 2 Corinthians we discover an entirely different way to live. It is a way where weakness, not strength, is prized. It is the way of grace. The letter of 2 Corinthians was written to Christians who were impressed by human strength. They were attracted to some worldly leaders who had all the right credentials according to the world's view of wisdom and power. They had the right impressive speeches and they had huge crowds and effortless living and large bank accounts. And these so-called super apostles were tremendously attractive to the Corinthian Christians as they were in danger of becoming worldly in their thinking. So Paul, the true authentic apostle, writes to them and to us to remind us what a grace-filled, gospel-shaped life looks like. And it is a life where weakness, not strength, is prized. This autumn, we are thinking about God's grace, the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people. We have been seeing These last two weeks, how in God's grace, he reached out to us. When we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. We don't deserve it, but he is generous and kind, and he makes us alive in Christ. But one of the great mistakes a Christian can make is to think that God's grace is just for the beginning of our Christian life. But it's not just for our first breath as a Christian. It is for every breath of our Christian life. And this morning, Paul will show us how God's grace transforms our understanding of ourselves and our worlds, our understanding of power and weakness. I want to focus just on those last few verses, verses seven to 10 of our reading. And here's our first point. The seriousness of pride. Look at verse seven. And Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. In a rare moment of guilt over the state of our garden, I found myself doing some weeding a few weeks ago. And um, in the ensuing battle with the thorns, I, um, I got one embedded in my finger, even through the gloves. 
And uh, I'm sure we've all had a thorn in our finger uh, over the years. Uh, Lorna certainly knew all about my thorn in my finger over the next few days as I whinged and complained about it. Of course, the thing about thorns in your finger is that um, they are tremendously annoying. You can see them under the skin, but you can't quite get them out. They sort of fester and linger there, and they, they impact your life. You can't ignore them. And Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Verse 7, he was tormented by this thorn. We're not sure what it is. We're not told. Maybe some serious illness, some physical difficulty, a speech impediment, a, a particular person, an enemy, an accuser, maybe a major setback, discouragements, all plausible, but none conclusively so. But it doesn't matter what the thorn actually was. The point is that it was serious and devastating. Paul the Apostle, he's no lightweight when it comes to handling a rough ride. If you were to flip back over the page to chapter 11, you'd see an, an extraordinary diary of his life. He has been shipwrecked and beaten, and he's been um, persecuted. He's been without food. He's been kept awake at night, agonizing over Christians. He's been through a tremendous amount in his life, and yet this thorn gets to him. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul is in agony over this thorn. He is undone by it. In the previous few verses, Paul talked about a man he knows who had some revelations caught up somehow into heaven, seeing extraordinary things. I know a man, says Paul, He's talking about himself. That's very clear because in verse seven, he is the one who saw these surpassingly great revelations. He's, he's awkward about it. He doesn't want to boast about these visions because his whole point is that we are weak, not strong. But he's talking like the super apostles in and around Corinth who claim to have incredible spiritual insights and visions. And he says, look, if you want to start playing CV kind of top trumps. I've got a pretty good CV myself. I've had incredible experiences of God caught up into heaven itself, but I'm not gonna boast about my experiences because actually my my real point, dear Corinthians, is my weakness. He's been given a thorn in his flesh to stop him from becoming conceited. It is striking, isn't it? We often think that God must be concerned about our health, our safety, and he is. We often ask God to deal with our difficulties and protect us from insults, and of course, it is right to pray about such things. But God is also concerned about our pride because pride is dangerous. It is devastating. When we think too much of ourselves and too little of God's power, then we set ourselves onto a course that takes us to a very dangerous place. Paul can see these dear Corinthians, who are Christians, by the way, but who are being attracted by worldly wisdom, and they are setting off on a course away from Christ, which is a devastating direction to travel in. And such is his concern that in chapter 13, he says to them, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. You see, pride in the heart of a Christian begins to tell us that we are self-sufficient. We might look back at the moment we became a Christian and realize that 
Well, only because of God's grace could we be raised from death to life. But once that's happened, it's over to us now. Thank you very much, God. It's down to our power and strength to live out the Christian life. And when we think that way, it's very dangerous spiritually. And Paul would say, better to have a terrible thorn with humility than no thorn with pride. The seriousness of pride. I do wonder if we see our pride as being all that serious. Uh, I think um, it's never easy to be honest about our sins, but if we had to give away a little sin somewhere, we would probably find it easier to mention pride before other sins that we are aware of in our hearts. It's kind of one of those respectable sins. You know, actually, if we're, we're quite a high achiever in life and we're doing lots of things, well, I do get a bit proud at times, but look, I've done quite a lot, actually. And so we sort of justify our pride as being, well, just one of those things that I'm working on, but it's not really that serious at all, is it? Maybe in our small groups when we're sharing things that God's working on in our hearts, we might mention pride, thinking it's a safe thing to mention. Here at Forward, there are many brilliantly successful and gifted people. I do wonder if pride will be one of our great battles here at Forward. The Lord has blessed us remarkably with gifts and talents, with brains, careers, opportunities for many of us. And so I wonder if pride will be one of our great dangers. Is our spiritual radar switched on to the fact that God could very well allow us to go through a season of real hardship, of real suffering, real turmoil, because he loves us too much to let us become proud? Let's, Let's be clear, I'm not... I'm not saying that this is going to be an easy thing. There's a real complexity, isn't there, to where this thorn comes from. Did you notice this kind of thorny issue about the thorn? At one level, we're told that this thorn, verse 7, is a messenger of Satan. There's no doubt that behind this agony that Paul experiences, Satan's at work. It's part of his scheming to undo the apostle. If he can bring Paul down with this thorn, he's achieved a major victory against Christ and the gospel. But notice also that Paul says that it was given to him. Well, then in verse 8, where does he plead to have the thorn taken away? Well, to the Lord. You see, in Paul's mind, God is the one who's given him this thorn, and God is the one who can take it away. And so on one hand, the devil is involved in Paul's agony, and yet the Lord is in charge of everything that is happening to Paul. And that is so often the way in the Bible that the devil thinks that he can undo God's people with his scheming. And yet in the very scheme, it is what makes God's people stronger and victorious. For it is this thorn which humbles Paul such that he discovers God's amazing, all-surpassing power. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Um, His brothers evilly betrayed him into slavery, yet God used that very evil for great good. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross The devil thought it was his moment of triumph over Christ, but of course it was the moment of his defeat. And so here too, as Paul is tormented by the schemes of the evil one, so it is a great opportunity for growth in the life of Paul. It can be dangerous to overread our experiences and to second guess what God is doing in our lives. And I'm certainly not saying that this explains all suffering in this broken world but it does help us to look for some answers. Think of uh, one man I spoke to recently who had just lost his dream job. 
initially devastated, but after a while, the Lord helped him to see that this job had made him proud. Think of another person dealing with poor health. Think of a student who fails their exams. And many more reasons beside these to be confused in this broken world. And yet Paul is confident that in his pain and agony, the Lord is helping him. The seriousness of pride. Next, the sufficiency of grace. I wonder if we've ever experienced this. We, we're confronted with some sadness or pain. We, we cry out to God, asking him to come and help us in our pain and suffering. And he doesn't seem to take away the cause of our turmoil. We go on praying, pleading day after day, and we can see no clear sign that he's going to act in such a way to take away the pain. Have you ever experienced that in your Christian life? My guess is most of us have in some way or another. It can start to eat away at our confidence that there really is a loving God who cares for his children and who answers our prayer when we are in such turmoil and he does nothing about it. Paul cries out for relief from his thorn. He pleads three times and God does not remove the thorn. He could have, but he doesn't. But I want us to see that God does answer Paul's prayer. Paul wanted comfort and relief from the thorn and God gives him comfort and relief, not by subtraction, but by addition. The thorn stays but God adds his grace. Verse nine. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, God answers Paul's prayer. His answer is to leave the thorn where it is, but then to pour out his all-sufficient grace to keep the weak apostle going. The last two weeks we've seen that God's grace comes to us when we were dead to make us alive in Christ. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It comes to us as a free gift. But so too our ongoing existence as Christians. Day by day, minute by minute, we need God's ongoing gracious involvement in our life to keep us Christian. To give us the power we need to keep going in this broken and difficult world. The sufficiency of grace this grace doesn't mean an absence of hardship, but rather a sustaining through the hardship. You see, as Paul pleads three times about his thorns, surely there's an echo to the even greater suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, uh, back in the Garden of Gethsemane before uh, the cross, we read about it in Matthew 26, three times Christ cried out to his heavenly Father, pleading for him to take away the cup of, of agony about to come his way. But three times he said, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross. He experienced the agony of death. Strong echoes, I think, of uh, the cross here as Paul three times cries out for relief from his pain. But notice, just as for Christ, so to you, Paul, the Father's answer is not to take away the pain, but to keep his beloved one through the pain. Grace through suffering, not around suffering. 
I think many Christians get through suffering by hoping life is about to get better. We have this picture of the near future where all of our frustrations will be taken away, where our confusions will be clarified, where we are able to enjoy a season of, of just rest and peace. Not, we're not talking about paradise, just, just life working for once without the hassle of, or the grief of, of a hardship. And that thought that soon, if we can just organize the pieces of the puzzle, then soon we'll be able to enjoy that kind of rest and that gets us through. But the offering, that the pattern here of the Christian life is not a hard season followed by peace, but rather ongoing hardship with ongoing grace. Think of one person dealing with chronic pain that will as far as we know, it never get better. Another person battling with depression. Another coping with real hostility at work because they are a Christian. I spoke to a friend just this week at a conference who is helping to lead a church somewhere else in the country and he just uh, explained to me how hard it is. It's a very small church, very few um, real and growing Christians, very few people willing to help and to serve. He's been there a number of years and seen very little growth and uh, he said to me, I'm going to stick it out for years to come, but it's going to be hard for years to come. And for that friend, discouragement may well be the big thorn in his side. We spend so much of our time and energy trying to get out of the pain and the hassle, planning, hoping, dreaming, complaining, worrying, when actually the Lord wants to come and walk with us day by day in the pain, giving us daily strength. God's power, verse 9, it is enormous. If our power is like a bottle of water, his power is like a mighty reservoir, totally inexhaustible. It is world-creating, death-defeating, new life-giving power. It is more than enough to get us through any trial we might experience. The Lord delights to pour out to his children daily strength. We don't earn this power. It's not like we come to a a meter and put in some coins and we get a few extra kilowatts of power to get us through the day as if we've somehow um, conjured up the resources to get it. No, this is gracious power. The Lord delights to give to his children what we need to get through a day if only we turn to him. The sufficiency of grace. But what does it look like to live a life dependent on God's sufficient grace? That's our final point. Point number three, the strength of weakness. And see how Paul applies this to his life, verse nine. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Or verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is not saying that we should view hardships and persecutions and tears glibly, lightly, as if they were nothing. That's not Paul's point at all. Uh, nor is he saying that we should go looking for hardships. There's nothing glamorous about going through a tough time. But Paul is saying that we should understand the link between our weakness and Christ's power. Over the, the uh, last few weeks, I've been reading a, an autobiography by the late missionary, Dr. Helen Roosevelt. 
Uh, she died last year. She was a missionary in the Congo from the 1950s onwards. Um, if you're looking for a good um, upbuilding, edifying biography by a wonderful Christian lady, then I recommend this book, Give Me This Mountain by Helen Roosevelt. It's a cracking read. But um, as I was reading through her, her account of her life, I, I was struck by one particular moment in her missionary experience. She'd been in the Congo for a number of years as a doctor. Against uh, many odds, she had been able to start a, a medical clinic deep in the jungle with very little resources, with basically her own energy as the only thing to get her going. And um, she had been able to build some buildings and get a clinic up and running. She got the locals in and trained them. And um, after a couple of years of blood, sweat, and tears, remarkably, this thing was up and running. A great blessing to many people. It was hard work. She was exhausted. She had very little sleep, um, was overwhelmed by the, the burdens emotionally and physically of caring for people basically on her own. And she started to realize that she couldn't keep things going as she had been doing. So she asked for help from a mission agency. They sent her in response, a more experienced doctor who would come in and actually run the clinic for her, and she would be his junior. It sounded like a very good plan on paper, but when this other doctor arrived, a godly man, she describes an ensuing year that was, in her words, stormy. For he arrived with his own ideas of how to run the clinic. Um, he didn't like some of the things she had done. He started to tweak and adjust her, her, her thing. And um, she didn't like it at all. They argued and debated and pushed against one another. And it was a year of friction and fighting. And at the end of the year, she had basically a breakdown. She couldn't keep going. She had to to get away from the whole setup. And she fled away to a, a Christian family and was broken, fed up with God, fed up with service. And as this Christian family prayed for her in one room, she was in another room. And the Lord broke her. He helped her to realize that this clinic had become for her a source of pride. It was her glory. She had done it all in her own strength. And in that long night, the Lord spoke to her, and I quote, he broke down the barriers of pride, the frigid restraint, and revealed so much of myself. He helped me to unburden my heart to reveal all the rottenness and sense of failure, the fears, the criticisms, the pride, and the selfishness. She stayed for another week or so, and she continued to understand that God hadn't saved her because of running the clinic. That the clinic wasn't there because of her strength or power. It was there because God had been at work. He helped her to realize that it wasn't about her at all. It was about his glory. Um, she couldn't take another breath without his strength to sustain her. And she left that retreat full of a joy she had never had. With a clarity that she was weak and God was strong. And she went back to serve alongside her superior. It wasn't always easy. But she had a a fresh strength and a clarity of understanding of what her role was. It's a wonderful example, I think, of how Paul describes his life in verses 9 and 10. Boasting of his weakness and discovering Christ's power resting on him. When we fight against God's power, when we boast in our own resources, when we think we are self-sufficient, we miss out on experiencing his power but as we humble ourselves before him, so his power comes and rests on us. Boasting in weakness, not in some morbid or self-pitying fascination, but simply so that others can see any success comes from the Lord. I was at a conference this week, as I mentioned, and a friend of mine came to me and we were chatting and he asked me directly, so how many people come on a Sunday at Fullwood? And I was thrilled that he asked me the question because the answer is quite a few people come. 
And in my heart, I saw it as a wonderful chance to boast I was part of this team. It's easy to boast, forgetting this church family only exists because of God's gracious power. If we want to be a a powerful church, and I hope we want to be a powerful church, it will mean boasting in our weaknesses. In our small groups, as we share prayer requests, being honest about our failings, when someone asks us after our formal time is over this morning over coffee how we're doing, it means being honest about our lives, not just giving the edited highlights. If a friend of ours becomes a Christian, it would mean remembering that we are but jars of clay with a tremendous and glorious gospel able to bring new life. It will mean that when we go through a tough time personally or as a church, we are not thrown by the realization that we are weak, but instead we see it as a chance to come to God and experience more of his gracious power. The world prizes personal strength and shuns personal weakness. May we be a church family who, by God's grace, shuns personal strength and prizes personal weakness. Let's pray. Father, it's only ever been this way that we are weak and you are strong. It's how our gospel story began when you raised us from death to life in Christ. Please help us to not think it could ever be any different. Father, please, in your loving kindness, carefully, with great skill, would you keep us humble, not to crush us, but to build us up. Father, please help us to be a strong and powerful church because we understand your grace and live by it day by day. Amen.